This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. grade or seventh grade we had a substitute teacher by the name of mrs o'connor beautiful girl boy I had a bad crush on her and so she went around the room and asking everybody what they want to do with their life and she got to me and for some reason or other and don't ask me why i don't know i said well i'm going to play professional football on the line at Baltimore. Favorites are the hometown Colts out to become the fourth team in league history to win two straight playoff times. Vice President Mixon is among the jam-packed crowd with eyes on Johnny Unitas, the great Colt quarterback. The career of Johnny Unitas cannot be measured in years or yards or even championships. As quarterback of the Baltimore Colts, Unitas did more than play the game of professional football. He carried it to the forefront of American sports. Unitas made his statement as a great athlete as television began to bloom and boom around the country. This beautiful 1959 Chevrolet Corvette is your award for being chosen the outstanding player in the championship playoff game with the New York Giants. Thank you very much, Ed. This Corvette is really going to look nice sitting in my garage. You know, we've already have a Chevrolet. No kidding. Well, this makes a set. Unitas exemplified the kind of clean-cut, can-do image that typified post-war America and the National Football League during its period of great growth in the 1950s and 60s. Just my mental picture of watching him, it reminds me so much of what my picture of a quarterback was forever. With those tall leather shoes, you know, he had those, those high top old pleated shoes and his stance and his handout. 
even the sound of his name has to do with unity and unite us. I mean, there was just something magic about that name. Unitas was the first quarterback to pass for 40,000 yards. His 290 touchdown passes still ranks third all time. For 18 seasons, he defined the game's most challenging position. There maybe were passers who could throw the ball better. Maybe there were quarterbacks who could handle it better. There were some who could run it better. There were never any who could do all the things at the high level of achievement that Unitas could do. came out of nowhere, he wasn't highly drafted, he wasn't wanted, he came and proved himself with no advanced billing and uh, literally dragged himself and the league out of obscurity into something that nobody could have ever imagined. He's, uh, honest to goodness, the American dream. You had a one there. He never got too emotional. He never became sentimental, and maybe it's attributed to the kind of a childhood he had, denied a father by his father's early death. I'm sure when John fell down, he didn't have a nanny to pick him up. I mean, his mother was either going to night school so she could improve her ability to earn, or working for the city of Pittsburgh scrubbing floors. Just watching my mother, how she worked and operated, and knowing how hard she had to work for everything that we had, uh, I think that was probably uh, one of the, the greatest uh, things that, that I was able to see. said, so, look, I have to work to get whatever I need to have. Unitas grew up in a small frame house overlooking the steel mills of Pittsburgh. He was only five years old when his father died during the Great Depression. There were four children in the family, and they all had to work. When John was eight years old, he was hauling coal through the streets every day after school. And uh, Johnny worked on the truck, and uh, he'd have to unload two ton of coal off that truck. Uh, if the dumpster wasn't working, he'd have to push it off by hand. Come home from school, if there was a, a load of coal on the street, I would go up and knock on the door and say, ask the lady if I could put the coal in for her. It's the only way I had of making any money, you know, spending money. So if you put in three ton of coal, you made a dollar fifty. It wasn't bad. <laughs> when he was in high school at St. Justin, people would go up to Moore Field in Pittsburgh and uh, see this quarterback who would throw jump passes 50 and 60 yards. And it was 140-pound uh, Johnny Unitas. I had the ability to play. I went up to the University of Notre Dame. They had a scholarship up there if they said it was okay. Went up there and worked out for Bernie Crimmins, who was the assistant coach. And uh, Crimmins said, geez, I like what you do. He said, but God, you're so small. You're 5'11", 130-some pounds. I said, you, we'd love to be sued for manslaughter up here. <laughs> so I, that was it. So I was fortunate enough to get into University of Louisville. As a matter of fact, when I first walked on the field at Louisville, the head coach thought I was the water boy. I was so small. Unitas grew to 6'1 and 175 pounds in college. He was drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers. But he found that professional football wasn't as professional as he imagined. I said to the guy, where are the whites? 
you know, the T-shirt and the athletic supporter and the socks, uh, the undergarments uh, before putting your pads and that on. He says, oh, right over there on the floor. I said, on the floor? He said, yeah. He says, they're all, they're, here's a big pile of socks and pile of athletic supporters and T-shirts. You rooted through them there until you find out what you wanted. And I said, this is professional football? That's the way we do it. So we went out and worked out and we come back in. So I just figured you just take the whites and throw them in the, in the laundry hamper. That's not no, you hang them on a hanger, supporter and the t-shirt and the socks, hang them up and we turn a big fan on to dry them out for the afternoon's practice. <laughs> that was Pittsburgh. The Steeler coaches thought so little of their ninth round draft pick, they kept him on the bench the entire preseason. My brother Tim actually sent my father a letter. It was about a nine-page letter telling him this is the best quarterback here and they're going to cut him. And he said they're making a big mistake. They come down and said, the coach wants to see you bring your notebook along with you so he can turn it in. So when I got into uh, his office, well, he says, we, we just can't carry four quarterbacks and uh, be a luxury for that and you'd have to be able to do something else. He says, so we're going to have to let you go. I got a little bit hot on the collar, and I just told him, I said, you know, I wouldn't mind being released or being cut if, if I had an opportunity to play and I screwed up very badly. But you never gave me the damn opportunity to do it. Married with a family to support, Unitas took a construction job in Pittsburgh and on weekends played semi-pro football for the Bloomfield Rams. He played offense and defense and returned punts all for $6 a game. The team played on a junior high school field, littered with broken glass and coated with oil to keep down the dust. Basically, it was like pickup games. You know, you'd practice maybe once a week. Uh, half the guys didn't have full uniforms. You'd wear old army boots to play and if you didn't have shoes, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Unitas led Bloomfield to an undefeated season. Don Kellett, the general manager in Baltimore, heard about Unitas and offered him a tryout. That 80-cent phone call would change the course of football history. The Colts were a struggling franchise that had never enjoyed a winning season. But in Unitas, Coach Weeb Eubank found a player he could build his team around. Weeb told me in training camp several times, keep working with uh, Unitas, keep working with Unitas. And as I look back on this later, I realized that uh, Weeb already knew that Unitas was going to be his quarterback one of these days. When the season began, Unitas was the backup to quarterback George Shaw, number 14. But when Shaw broke his leg in the fourth game at Chicago, Unitas got his chance to play. And the first pass he throws for a touchdown, but to the Bears. A guy named J.C. Caroline intercepted it, and I said, oh, what a, what a start this guy's got. That was enough to rattle anybody, wouldn't you think? You know how much that affected him? I don't think it affected him at all. Because I saw him, you know, in the huddle, he just went about his business. And uh, before the day was over, he had put up very decent numbers. And that began the string of many, many years playing quarterback for the Colts. At the time, we didn't even know how to say his last name. A lot of us called him Unites or Unitas. When I remember him being announced, you know, for the first time, Number 19, John Unitas. Johnny Unitas shoots a soaring pass. It's taken on the fly by Lenny Moore, all the way to the goal. When we start throwing the ball over 20 times, I remember reading in the newspaper where they said, well, if you got to throw the ball over 20 times, 
you're going to lose the game most of the time. Well, then he starts throwing the ball over 30 times some games, and they say, oh, my God, the, the game is being ruined. Playing at home, the Colts' Johnny Unitas gives the Chicago Bears a lesson in the art of forward passing. Many more the receiver, 66 yards on the play. You thought that there was no way to stop him. He projected that kind of, of uh, dominance. It was sort of like Ted Williams. I was always surprised when Ted Williams made an out. I would be surprised if Johnny Unitas needed to make a first down, that he wouldn't make it. This one's tricky. Unitas to Alan Amici, who returns the ball. And Unitas gets off another touchdown pass, this time to Ray Berry. From 1957 to 1960, Unitas threw at least one touchdown pass in 47 consecutive games, an NFL record that still stands today. Only five other quarterbacks in the history of the league had a streak even half as long as Unitas. So there's five guys clustered between 24 and 30, and then there's Unitas standing alone at 47. You know, I never knew that I was throwing touchdown passes in every ball game and had setting some kind of a record. Who knows? I don't look at the record books. Did we win? That's all I care about. Everybody knew that he had only one purpose, this win. And uh, it affected our whole football team. There's one reason why he was a great leader. But he also had a demeanor about him that was interesting because if United would throw a touchdown to win the game and you'd see him walking off the field, or if they would lose the game, you couldn't tell the difference. He would just kind of go off the field in the same way. He never exhibited any kind of real emotion. I get emotional over kids and animals, more so than football. I've never been a rah-rah type individual. I think John is like a, a loner. I think he gotta be, uh, to be a good quarterback. I guess it's something I just probably established a long time back in high school, and that uh, the coach said that you really have to be a little bit aloof from everybody else, even though you want to be friends with them and join in all the different things they like to do. You just can't do it. He sort of was stayed apart from us. But, I mean, you'd go out and have a beer with him, we'd talk football, we'd give him our ideas, he'd throw them back at us. But he always, you know, he had that air about him that was, that was, that was sort of special. It actually sort of endeared you more, that you almost wanted to cheer more because he didn't throw his hand in the air and, like, you know, carry on. So you almost had to do, do, do more. The stadium on 33rd Street had an atmosphere unique in pro football. Each Sunday was like a family gathering and Unitas was the favorite son. All the blue and white outfits out there with the Colts written on These are Baltimore fans, and coming into Baltimore Stadium was coming into to an outside insane asylum. You just have to be in Baltimore to appreciate enthusiasm. I've never seen spirit that existed in any city as it does here in Baltimore. The Colts fit the blue-collar fabric of Baltimore. The players lived in the same row house neighborhoods and drank at the same corner bars as the fans who cheered them each Sunday. All of these guys, Unitas and all of them, they were just sort of everywhere. They were, they were 
They were part of Baltimore. I'm in seventh or eighth grade in Baltimore. Every day I hitchhiked home. And one day I'm at the corner of Charles and Belvedere, and a guy motions me into the car, and I look in there and I go, that's Johnny Unitas. So I get in the car. I'm totally petrified by the whole thing. We drive for two, three miles, and uh, at the end of it, I sort of look at him. He looks at me. He knows I know, but I can't say anything. So I just, I just get out of the car. I think I thank him. At least I hope I did. I had a major operation. My appendix exploded, and uh, I was rushed to the hospital. And uh, I was laying there, you know, with tubes in me and things like this. And, one of the nurses came by and said, uh, oh, did you hear? John Unitas is coming up to see you. I said, yeah, right. Well, about two hours later, I looked up, and there he was. Some of the band members told him. Now, he didn't know who I was. To get the picture done, he had to put his arm around me to hold me up, because I was all banished up. But uh, he spent about two and a half hours with me talking football, being there for me. He gave me a game ball. The Colts absolutely dominated our consciousness. There were no college teams. The Orioles weren't any good. There was no basketball to speak of in Baltimore at that time, no hockey. Colts absolutely owned the city, particularly since we didn't have anything else to be proud of. People would mispronounce the name, Baltimore, Balmer. It was the place that the train went through on its way from Washington to New York. Yankee Stadium jam-packed for the greatest playoff game in pro football history. New York Giants versus the Baltimore Colts for the national pro title. Every star needs a showcase to show what he can do. That game was it for Johnny Unitas. It has been called the greatest game ever played. There were 15 future Hall of Famers on the field. But in the fourth quarter, with the Colts trailing by three points, it was Unitas who seized the moment. You can talk about legend, you can talk about myth, you can talk about all of that, but Johnny Unitas changed the position of quarterback at that moment. He, he sort of invented it. The two-minute drill and everything he did and standing in there, there never had been anything like it before. He takes throws to uh, Perry. Perry shakes off one man. Carl Evans is tackled by another at the 35-yard line. Back goes Unitas to throws. Unitas to Barry, Unitas to Barry. I mean, I go to bed at night saying Unitas to Barry, Unitas to Barry. Even now, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it drove me crazy. It drove everybody else crazy, too. But, I mean, you, we couldn't stop it. And here comes uh, the field goal team in for Baltimore, I believe, with 15 seconds to go. The clock's running. There's the kick. It's good. Unitas will take it back. 17-17. This is Chuck Thompson speaking to you from Yankee Stadium, where the Baltimore Colts are It was a new term in football, sudden death. The first team to score wins. A nation watched spellbound as the Colts marched through the Giants' defense. 40 years later, the image that endures is that of Unitas, standing calmly in the eye of the storm, his legend growing with each first down. I just had the feeling of inevitability, and I knew that we couldn't stop him. I asked the guys sitting next to me on the bench, Don Heinrich, I remember asking him, what happens now? And they said, well, we're not going to stop him. So uh, we're losing about $1,000 a minute here. When he seemed sure to pass, Unitas called a draw play to Alan Amici, putting the Colts in position to kick the winning field goal. But Unitas again did the unexpected 
and pass to Jim Mutchler. It was a dangerous pass, which we didn't think because we're so used to Unitas doing things like that. Well, everyone says, why did you gamble? Well, it wasn't a gamble because they didn't see what I saw. It was a simple drop pass. I said, geez, Jimmy, I tried to get your touchdown. If you had kept your feet, you could have gone into the end zone. A bubble of the ball. Come on, Mark Colts. Good is calling out the signal. who just three years earlier was operating a pile driver and playing football on the sandlots of Pittsburgh was now a world champion and an authentic American hero. People for whom Johnny Unitas was just a name and a headline suddenly had a reason to see a Unitas under the most dramatic, pressure-filled moments. For them, that was something that attracted them to the game and to him in particular. Baltimore is stuck between, you know, Washington and New York. We, we always saw ourselves as, a, as an underdog, so Unitas is the one who finally, like, puts, you know, Baltimore on the map. And John was the top personality in a town where steel workers and dock workers, people that worked in smelting pits, a blue-collar town, associated with somebody that wore high tops and worked hard and uh, had a brush cut. John Unitas was a Baltimore icon. During the 1950s, he was also a typical working stiff. He was trying to support his family while pursuing the American dream. You know, during those times, we still had to work. I worked at Bethlehem Steel for a year, cutting steel, jumping up and down, doing everything he wanted me to do. $7,000 wasn't going to take care of five kids. I had gone in to talk to Don Kellett, and he said, what are you want? I said, I want 25000 He says, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. He said, I can't talk to you. you got to talk to Carol. And Carol, when he talked, he would sing. But he said, John, what seems to be the problem with you and Mr. Kellett? I said, well, I really don't have a problem. Mr. Kellett's got the problem, Mr. Rosenblum. He said, Don. He said, God, Carol, the kid wants $25,000, for God's sake. We don't pay guys who've been in the league 10 years $25,000. And I said, well, wait a minute. Are you paying on the amount of years you spend in the league or the ability to get the job done? And it was dead silence. And Rosenblum started laughing and says, I think he's got you. <laughs> the two most revered sports heroes in, in this city are, are, are Johnny Unitas and Brooks Robinson. They were terrific players, but they lived in the community, became part of the community. I've had many people walk up to me and say, aren't you John Unitas? And this guy says, Brooks. I pay attention to him. He said, Brooks. Brooks Robinson. I said, are you talking to me? He said, yeah, man. You're Brooks Robinson, aren't you? I remember the bowling alleys, the John Unitas bowling lanes. And so we started to actually, you know, bowl. It sort of started a little bit of a, a fad at that time. Yeah, John Unitas' bowling lanes. I mean, we would never go bowling otherwise. 
Unitas would always belong to Baltimore. But after the sudden death game, he took his place among America's most recognizable athletes. Mickey Mantle. I want my maple. Johnny Unitas. I want my maple. Will Chamberlain. I want my maple. Maple. It comes in flavor. As pro football enlarged its national profile, Unitas became the personification of the sport's rising popularity. Are you ready, Johnny? Get set. Move it, Unitas. Move it, move it. Nice going, Johnny. Ooh. Right now, I want you to meet a great quarterback of the Baltimore Colts. Here he is, Johnny Unitas. So let's have a tremendous hand. the best part of the game let's let's say what's the tensest part of the game for you Johnny Gene the most tense thing for me to do is go up there and get in position to take the ball from the center in this way it's just the old height Unitas's celebrity was tied to his accomplishments from 1957 through 1967 he appeared in 10 Pro Bowls and was named league MVP three times he fashioned an inspirational portrait of what a quarterback should be I wrote in Sports Illustrated that all thoroughbred horses are descended from three Arabian stallions. Everybody who plays quarterback today is descended from Johnny Unitas. In my era when I played, Unitas was the guy that you sort of patterned yourself after. He was a star with the Colts before I was with the Packers, and so I studied him in an effort to raise my capacities. George Plimpton was a somewhat less accomplished quarterback. While researching his sequel to Paper Lion, he too was influenced by Unitas. Inevitably, I kept glancing over at John Unitas, as if I could pick up his quarterbacking skills by osmosis. Sidelined by an injury, he kept to himself, but practicing endlessly. He didn't have some sort of huge physical presence. In fact, if you saw him in street clothes, very recognizable face, but the last thing in the world you would have expected was that he was a quarterback. He had sort of sloping shoulders, his head was sort of tucked into his neck like a turtle. And I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm almost a better physical specimen than this fellow. First time I saw Unitas in a locker room, I said, uh, where's Unitas? They pointed to that guy in a corner, say. I said, you're kidding me. I said, uh, that's a locker room boy, isn't it? That's not Unitas. Unitas's unimposing physique belied his skill for delivering a pass with astounding velocity. I never realized how hard Johnny Unitas threw the football. You know, I was a fastball pitcher, and I'm saying Raymond Berry went down to that 15-yard sideline, and the ball was on a string. Unitas was a virtually flawless passer and an absolutely fearless competitor. He could throw a block as hard as he threw a pass. His enthusiasm for physical contact was one of his trademarks. He was a guy who would uh, hustle down the field and make a block. If somebody was chasing from behind, he'd cut you down. He played the game not just like a quarterback. He played it like a player. If he threw an interception, he'd go after the guy who was like, U-S-O-B-U, how dare you do that? And man, there you see those high tops going across the field. He hit people. I mean, to tell you, he was a tough guy. He was cold-blooded. You hear quarterbacks griping and bitching and moaning in the huddle because, uh, you know, we might punch him a little bit on the ground or gouge the eyes a little bit or put dirt in their uh, face or something. You don't hear Unitas don't say nothing. He wipe the dirt off his eyes and he come right back and throw one on you. 
if you show fear, then you, you've lost your game. Um, I never worried about that part of it. Uh, I figured I could stand in the pocket and they could hit me all day long. It's not going to bug me at all. Unitas's warrior mentality was defined by a 1960 game in Chicago. With 19 seconds remaining, the Colts trailed by three points, and Unitas was battered by a Bears blitz. He suffered a split nose and a severely cut upper lip. It was the most physical game I've ever played in. John probably got scars on his face today. He was a mess. Uh, he really got, he got hit very severely. And, uh, you know, his real blood. You couldn't even look at him face to face. And he kept staring at the ground because he looked so horrible. Like they stepped over his face and on his face, blood squirting up. And, and Alex Sandusky reached down and picked up a hand of mud. He thought you'd pack his nose full of mud. We could stop it from bleeding. But his blood just kept coming. Trainer wanted to take him out, and he says, you know, you take me out, I'll kill you. They didn't take him out. My nose was messed up, my, my face was bleeding, all that kind of stuff. That's no big deal. I mean, I don't throw with my face. He wound up to a touchdown on the next play to Lenny Moore in the right corner of the end zone. And uh, it was quite a statement, wasn't it? Uh, blast me in the nose, and I blast you in the end zone. He endured a career-spanning assortment of injuries without complaint. But today, Unitas wants the NFL to compensate him for the disability he claims resulted from an injury to his right arm. This occurred during a 1968 preseason game when the muscles on Unitas' elbow were completely torn. If I recall, Mackey had to split a double zone or something. He had to pop the ball like that, which he did. John caught it and went 80 yards for a touchdown. And Unitas comes off like this. So, you know, usually he bangs his finger on my headgear or something, and I said, what do you got? And he said, I don't know, this thing feels like it's torn or something. They didn't realize that what had happened was that the two tendons that hold the elbow, the upper and lower arm together, were torn off the bone, and that they just laid in there for 30 years. And it just, within the last year and a half, and now's when the thing just came to fruition, that my, I lost all the strength in my fingers. I can't use my index finger or my thumb, so practically I, I'm a left-handed person with most everything I do now. The atrophy that's set in, he can't pick up a half a pound with his right hand. When he goes out and tries to play golf, he has a golf level with Velcro on it to hold his hand on the club so it doesn't fall off because he hasn't got the strength to do it. Today, Unitas's great right hand is so weak he can hardly write his name and can't button his shirt. Yet the National Football League is rejecting his disability claim. To turn its back on a man who helped make the NFL as popular and as rich as it is today is an act of outrageous ingratitude. Everybody feels pretty bad that Mr. Unitas isn't happy with the benefits he's getting. He's already receiving retirement benefits. The NFL player plans for which I'm the lawyer pays disability benefits for people who are unable to work. So you can't get both a retirement benefit and the disability benefit. Even his own doctors say that he is uh, not prevented from working despite his very real physical problems. Federal government regulates pension plans pretty closely, and one of my unfortunate jobs as a lawyer is to have to advise them that it would violate federal law to pay extra benefits to Mr. Unitas. Every player that's played the game who has any type of injury is going to end up with some form of arthritis in their, in their latter years. And one of my statements of the Players Association is to go into the next uh, negotiations with the owners and, f and fight for insurance 
for latter part of your lifetime, 50, 55, 60, when things start really happening to you. Oh, there is no such animal at this point. He's alienated now from the National Football League. He doesn't like a lot of things that go on there. For the ceremonial coin toss of Super Bowl 33, the NFL invited participants from the 1958 championship game to serve as honorary captains. But Unitas was conspicuous in his absence. Despite the personal appeals of a league vice president, the man who symbolized Colts football did not attend. Instead, he honored a prior commitment to appear at a card show. I have an obligation that I've already agreed to do for the Super Bowl for the people in Canada. And he said, well, cancel it. I said, well, no, I can't cancel it. I says, that's a, that's a uh, valuable item to me. I says, does the, the NFL want to pick up what I'm going to be getting up there? Of course not. I said, well, very simple. I can't do it. Players were there. The only one they mentioned was Gino Marchetti. Gino, would you please toss the coin? Didn't look like much of a ceremony without John Unitas there. <laughs> During the 17 seasons that John Unitas played in Baltimore, the Colts posted the NFL's highest winning percentage. Unitas inspired the team with a terse but effective leadership style. Before we would go out to play, the captains usually stood up and said something. And our defensive captain was usually Freddie Miller. So Freddie would stand up, and he was an LSU guy, you know, and he's, he would give us an impassioned deal about how we had to go out and smash and do our job. And Unitas was just standing there with his little narrow shoulders sort of hunched up next to the door where you take the field. He always stood in the same place. And so Freddie turned and said, John, you got anything to say? He always said the same thing. Talk's cheap. Let's go play. He doesn't have to say a word. All he's got to say is, hey, follow me. We're going to go down the field and score. Man, he's done it too many times for me to call him a liar. I'm following him. Out left, split right, zone pass right, unwanted. I mean, I look over there, and there's blood all over his face, and his nose is broken again. He just looks at me, and he says, 79. Well, I knew that that meant 79 was the guy I was supposed to block. <laughs> so I would say something like, how good him. The most dominating moment I can recall was him stepping in the huddle with a wide receiver who had run the wrong route and looking him in the eye and just motioning him to the sideline. He stepped out and he said, Shula, send me a receiver that knows the routes. Get him out. I don't want him. He hit me right in my hands and I dropped the ball. Well, the whole place went ballistic. They were throwing things at my family, calling me butterflies. Got back in the huddle, United said, same play silenced the crowd. I went 57 yards for a touchdown. It was John Unitas' way of saying, hey, I believe in you, then he came right back to me. My high school coach, Max Carey, said, now look, you're the boss on the field. Now when you come off the field, we'll discuss whatever we have to discuss. He said, I'm only saying one thing to you. He said, if you run this play or that play, you damn sure better have a good reason for it. First play, spit right. John called every play. They didn't send guys in with plays. They didn't have the microphones in the ear. We may have called four plays the whole year. John called each and every play. That's how intelligent he was, how smart he was, and he always made the right choice. In 1963, Eubank was replaced by Don Shula, 
an ex-teammate of Unitas. He had no previous head coaching experience. Shula's desire to put his own stamp on the play calling rankled the Colts quarterback. John really felt that he didn't have to have a coach telling him what he had to do. I think John felt that this is my job. It'll be my responsibility whether we win or we lose, and I think I know how to win. John Unitas was a tremendous competitor, but he also, you know, he had his own ideas as to how things should be done. You really had to treat John with kid gloves. He thought that Shula was a very bright guy. He knew how to motivate people and everything. But how do you motivate somebody like a John Unitas who probably knew more than Don Shula did about the offense? Whenever he would get in a heavy discussion with Shula, he'd say, is that the way you want it, coach? That's the way it'll be. I was the youngest coach in the history of the National Football League. I was just 33 years old when I got to be head coach of the Colts. You know, it's like one of your high school classmates coming back and all of a sudden he's your boss at a job that you did better than he did. We was like a high school principal as a coach. Have a little contact, so we had a little scrimmage. Shula's like General Patton. Jesus, Corky, what the hell are we doing? We'll get killed. But he was a hollering and screaming type coach. I never did like those people, uh, basically, uh, because of that, you know. It, but that was his way of, of coaching. John had a lot of self-control in the situation. He didn't broadcast to the media that, I'm, that I disagree with Shula. He never drew a line in the sand and said, you know, Shula and I are on opposite ends. One of them was a great, great football coach. The other one was a great, great quarterback. You know, you're not always going to be big buddies, but you can win together. In 1968, Baltimore won without Unitas. His preseason elbow injury had reduced him to backup status. Journeyman Earl Morrill earned Player of the Year honors, and the Colts posted a league-best 13-1 record. Unitas handled his unaccustomed role with class. Well, you got the one coverage on a, on a CR to Willie that one time. But when Super Bowl III began, his very presence, even as an understudy, suggested dramatic possibilities. And don't forget about Unitas today because he was throwing fairly well in practice. His arm has improved, and you never know what happened, but Johnny U, who many consider the finest quarterback that ever lived, could still be a factor in this game. This game was to be dominated by Jets quarterback Joe Namath, who had guaranteed a victory. Broadway Joe's brash headline-grabbing personality made him the antithesis of Johnny U. Throughout the first half, Namath outplayed the mistake-prone moral. It seemed almost certain that Shula would turn to Unitas after halftime. Right before halftime on the field, uh, Shula turned to me and said, I want you ready to go the next half. I said, fine, I'm ready to go anytime you want. Yet it wasn't until late in the third quarter that Unitas entered the game. His second drive culminated in the Colts' only touchdown. When John came in the game, I think that added a dimension. I think the Jets' faces changed. I walked up to him as he was walking on the field, and I whispered to him, I said, John, come on, man. I said, not today. <laughs> but ultimately, Baltimore suffered one of pro football's most incredible upsets. Still, there's at least one man who believes that Unitas could have turned things around if he'd entered the game earlier. I always felt that had I had started the second half that I would have had more time to work and things would have maybe end up a little bit differently. Two seasons later, 
Unitas was back in charge, and the Colts stood on the verge of another Super Bowl appearance. The 1970 AFC title game against Oakland showcased a cunning veteran whose command of his craft was as assured as ever. A 27-17 victory demonstrated that the legendary Golden Arm had lost some of its luster. But number 19 was getting by just fine on guile and grit. John, in terms of your physical ability, how much of are you now what you were 10 years ago? How much are you 10 years ago that you were? Oh, I don't know, 70%. You're pretty good. <laughs> You're less than that? You no, said? I'm 85. Well, I don't have as strong an arm as I once had. That's understandable. Right. It's a matter of knowledge and how to work, use it now. Here's a guy who span of championships as a starting quarterback started with the 1958 title game and finished in January of 71 in Super Bowl V. That's a tremendous lifespan. Just think of it in terms of the space age. In 58, we weren't even off the ground yet. By 71, we'd already sent a guy to the moon and back. We'd sent a couple more guys to the moon and people were tired of it. In Super Bowl V, Unitas lacked a good fastball, but he threw a junk pitch for a strike. A deflected pass was transformed into a 75-yard touchdown by John Mackey, number 88. But before halftime, Unitas suffered badly bruised ribs and spent the rest of the day on the sidelines. He would earn his third championship ring, but it was Earl Morrill who engineered the game-winning drive. A torn Achilles tendon hampered Unitas in 1971. But those who felt he should hang up those famed black high tops didn't count on his remarkable resiliency. By week 10, Unitas was the starter once again. And Baltimore finished the season in yet another AFC title game. It was amazing to everybody because we didn't think that we had a chance for him to come back. He's a man on crutches. And all of a sudden, he starts Plan like the Unitas of old. The Unitas of old belong more to memory than to the moment. But when Joe Namath visited Baltimore in 1972, Unitas shouted a resounding last hurrah. In what became known as the shootout, the two quarterbacks combined for an NFL record 872 passing yards. At age 39, Unitas achieved personal bests for attempts and completions. But Namath threw for six touchdowns in a seesaw battle won by the Jets, 44 to 34. The 1972 Colts lost five of their first six games and became a team in turmoil. New owner Robert Ursay was intent on dismantling an aging club. Five weeks into the season, general manager Joe Thomas issued the stunning decree that John Unitas be benched. Here's what happened. I mean, uh, it was a day off, and so a few of us were in there to get treatment or whatever it is that we do. I was one of them, Unitas was one of them, and somebody picked up the phone and said, John, it's for you, and he walked back there and he said, okay, fine, put the phone down. And he walks out and Sully or somebody said, who was it? And he said, I'm down. He said, what do you mean you're down? He said, I'm benched, I'm through. I've been put on the bench. And the conversation wasn't 10 seconds. That's not the way you tell John Unitas he's not starting the next game. 
And I talked to John Sandusky, he said, look, he said, the, they told me never to play you again, that you would never play another down in a cold uniform. I said, coach, I said, well, that's up to them. They're, they're, they're the owners. And I said, but I don't tell you what, I will not run the clock out for you. Time was running out on Unitas' career in Baltimore. But on December 3rd, the Colts team captain would make his last great statement at Memorial Stadium. In the fourth quarter, starter Marty Domrez, number 14, gave way to Unitas and won final miracle on 33rd Street. I had run in for a touchdown and got hit in the hip late in the game. So I came to the sideline. Everybody in the stands is chanting, we want Unitas. I came to the sideline and John Sandusky, who was the interim head coach, got me aside from John, probably 20 yards away, and said, uh, John won't go in the game. And I just stood there. I, was, I, I almost had my mind made up to let him come off the field and go back in the ball game. He said, well, you got hit in the hip. How about if I tell him you're injured? I said, well, that's fine. You can tell him I'm injured. I want no part of it, knowing John. And so uh, he said, well, I'm going to go down. You stay here. So he walked down to John, had a conversation with him. I don't know what he told him other than he pointed to me and he pointed to his own hip. And John looked down at me. I shook my head yes. And with that, John stood up. The crowd's response, I mean, I'm getting chills just telling the story, it was unbelievable. And John came in and, you know, lobbed the pass to Eddie Hinton, who made one of the greatest runs in history. And it was like Eddie Hinton was running for destiny. And it was one of the most unbelievable moments uh, in a long, glittering, illustrious career for John. About the time that John threw that ball to Eddie Hinton, this plane comes tooling by Memorial Stadium. Unitas, we stand. And I'll tell you, if I've ever heard that stadium really erupt, it really did then. Everyone was on their feet, cheering. I wasn't there for Ted Williams' last at-bat, but I'm sure it was very similar to that moment in sports history when Williams hit a home run in his last at-bat. It was the highlight of my NFL career. That moment was just spectacular, and the entire community responded to the legend coming into the game and showed the warmth and appreciation they had for him as the greatest quarterback in NFL history. In 1973, 40-year-old John Unitas was sold to the San Diego Chargers for $150,000. I think everything about the situation here was alien to John. He was coming from the East. To me, he's almost like a prototype uh, Easterner. And uh, here he was plunked down in this very laid back Southern California community. I never felt that John Unitas was comfortable here. After practice, I had uh, a bunch of guys going into this one room. Well, you know, usually the guys are going to have a beer or something like that. So I figured I'd go knock on the door and see what's going on. And when I knocked on the door, Jeep became deathly silent. You know, and, and I couldn't get in. And finally, one of the players came to the door and opened it up. After I knocked a couple more times, I said, you guys have a beer in here or anything? Yeah, yeah, man, yeah, you, come on in. So I walked in, there's about 15 guys in there. So I sat down, and I figured, well, just shoot the breeze here for a while. And they had all the windows open, so we were sitting there talking about football and everything else in the football team. And all of a sudden, I see one guy lights up a cigarette. I have no problem with that. People smoke all the time. 
And all of a sudden, it, the cigarette starts coming down the line. I said, only got one cigarette for the whole bunch, <laughs> you know? And uh, then all of a sudden, the big light bulb lights up over here, you know? I says, oh, excuse me, guys, I'm in the wrong room. I put it out the door. You know, a guy misses a ball here, and then he misses another one, and you know, I just would say something like, well, no, no wonder he's up smoking rope in his room all night. He hated the whole situation. I mean, because, you know, this is a man who know how to win. You know, he was, he was disappointed in the system we had. You know, you're still out there with the same old dumb plays and doing the same old dumb things. There's nothing gonna change. They were a team at that point that had to be rebuilt, and then you're not gonna rebuild with a 40-year-old quarterback, no matter how much of a god he is. The season's fourth week saw Unitas make his first ever NFL start in Pittsburgh. But the homecoming was hardly a happy one. He absorbed a vicious pounding and was eventually replaced by Dan Fouts. Unitas never started another game, and one year later, he retired from professional football. For the past 18 years, my job in professional football has been on the field. But this year, I have a new role to fill, part of which is to host NFL Playbook. Just lift and Unitas spent six seasons with CBS, as an NFL commentator. With a guy like John, uh, when he was playing, you'd just sort of uh, run over there and give him a little slap on the face and he'd fall there. <laughs> and now let's get back to the He never NFC took his new role seriously, especially when he provided color commentary for a Disney version of pro football. Uh-oh, a little confusion down there. The mule has romped onto the field. How about this way? There's no way! Ladies, Ladies and, gentlemen, and gentlemen, may I have, I have your, your attention, attention please? please. The rule book does not define the word player. And as you say, Pepper, there's no way. Five years after his retirement, Unitas proved that what he still did best was compete. 1978, they had a touch football game to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the sudden death game in Central Park, and it was basically a picnic. And they had about six to a side, two-handed touch. Giants couldn't cover Raymond Barry in 58, and they couldn't in 78. John got in the huddle, started calling plays with the exact terminology that, that he used in 1958, and was throwing darts all over the field, and they killed the Giants, and, and he took it completely seriously. While he was on the football field, he was there to win. He's intercepted by Unitas. He swings to the far sidelines. I mean, they're to have a good time, and the best way to have a good time is to win. Nothing good about losing. I don't care what it is. <laughs> Checkers, marbles. Life after the NFL hasn't always been easy for Unitas. But today he is in demand for personal appearances at card shows and trade shows all across North America. At home games for Baltimore's new NFL franchise, he serves as a symbol of the town's proud pro football tradition. His trademark resiliency has enabled him to rebound from numerous health problems. By turning his legend into a valuable asset, he has recovered from several business setbacks. He should have had a post-career like DiMaggio's. He should have been able to have a few endorsements and, and to bask in what he achieved. And again, it's against his nature. Uh, from the way he grew up, all he wants to do is be able to earn a living. But I, I just don't think he got a lot of breaks. Placing our picture with you now. Oh my God. <laughs> that had to be very difficult for an athlete to um, have so many uh, different ventures 
that really didn't come through the way he hoped that they would come through. But John, when that trouble was over, he never looked back. Memorial Stadium is deserted now. Not long ago, Unitas took a tour down memory lane. Typically, he left it to others to get nostalgic over days gone by. I called John and I, I said, John, I have this idea. I wanted to uh, photograph you at uh, Memorial Stadium. And uh, he said, okay, the great Johnny Unitas in this empty stadium, recalling all his moments of greatness, the roar of the crowd and uh, the thunder that echoed through that stadium that knocked the paint off of the eye beams when Johnny Unitas would come on the field. I did get a few goosebumps. It happened more to me than obviously it would to John. I took it to a um, processing company and uh, they knew who that was without me telling them. And it was just a silhouette of a guy, Johnny with his uh, broad, stooped shoulders. They said, that's Johnny Unitas. Once, there were miracles on 33rd Street. The man who created most of them remains a towering figure in the town of Baltimore and in the history of pro football. Ladies and gentlemen, from the dugout, John Constantine Unitas. Sunday afternoon, and thank you for sharing an important part of my life. In 1969, Unitas was voted the NFL's greatest quarterback of the first half century. 25 years later, he was selected to the league's all-time team. You close your eyes and think of quarterbacks, that's the only one I really comes to mind. That wonderful generalship, command, is what we will think of him. And then maybe that's all that's necessary. Maybe that's enough. Can you imagine, you know, dreaming up this dream where you want to be a wide receiver in pro football? And then uh, you get to be one, and you get to be one with John Unitas for 12 years. Are you going to beat that? You can't talk that. <laughs> John's the real deal. So when the image matches the substance, then you have a John Unitas. And I think that's the reason that all of us who are in the huddle with him love him and admire him so much, because he was real and he was tough. He knew how to win, he cared about the team, all the stuff that we all love to preach about. He lived out as a teammate and a football player. If I do my job and I call the game right, if I put the ball where it's supposed to be, we're going to win. I just enjoyed everything, the whole career that I had. I even enjoyed practicing, so that wasn't a chore for me. And uh, I guess 
Probably the most treasured thing that you'd have is the, the people that you met, not only in football, but outside of football. And the fact that uh, nowadays, uh, if I'm walking down the street, somebody will come up and say, John, thanks, what? thanks for the memories. Those memories are also milestones in American sports history. They were created by a common man with uncommon gifts. His name is Johnny Unitas.